Welcome to See Me After Class. This is a podcast by two New Zealand secondary school teachers based in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. We operate out of classrooms that look out over the most stunning mountain ranges in the bottom of the South Island. And it's my pleasure to introduce Renee Plunkett, who is a fourth year English teacher. And sitting here with me is Chris War, a teacher with 17 years under his belt from both overseas and here in New Zealand. And Renee, apart from being a teacher, is also an avid gardener. And Chris also enjoys triathlon. This podcast is about the day-to-day realities and joys and sometimes horrors of our teaching experience in the classroom. So we invite you to listen in and we invite you to give us feedback on what you hear. This is... See me after class. Welcome to episode four of See Me After Class. Renee, hello. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good. This week we've got a slightly different format because Renee, as she does, has been phoning (laughs) stuff in again. As always. Yeah, and I can't help myself. No, exactly. And I've got you here. So I thought (laughs) what I might do is chop up everything you've phoned in and we might just respond to each thing. In addition to that, we've also got our interview with Rosemary Hipkins, which Mm. I've been really looking forward to sharing with you. Yes, I'm also looking forward to hearing this interview. I think it's going to be fascinating. Rightio, let's get to it. Chris's phone. You can try and leave a message. Hi Chris, I'm just sitting here after netball thinking about our day today and despite feeling a little knackered, I'm actually feeling a renewed excitement for an aspect of our micro-credentialing project that we probably haven't discussed for a while. To give some context to our listeners, our school has just completed our first team-up conferences of the year with our students and their parents. In these, we give um, the parents a chance to meet the people standing in front of their children for four hours a week, um, and also just to discuss what it is um, their child or our students need to have a successful year in our respective subjects. Something that I found has come up a lot with my year 10 parents um, is this growing distance that parents are feeling from their child's education at secondary school. It's something I feel that we do well with our classroom blog sites um, and things like that in the English department, but I think that we're going to be tackling this in a different way during this project, and that's through that making assessment visible and understandable for both the students and the parents and also, in addition to this, the wider community. Um, With the credentials being online, accessible to anyone, these parents will be able to not only see what their child is achieving and when they're achieving it, but also what is on offer for them to, 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 to actually have a go at. And I hope that this gives them a platform for beginning a dialogue with their child about their own learning um, and possibly open some doors for parents to feed into um, their child's learning experience with some of their own skills and some of their own knowledge that they, that they can bring to the table. Well, these parent conferences, they're such a big feature in the life of teachers. Mm. And I have to say that after a day of teaching, knowing that I've got another five hours speaking to a different family every seven minutes without a break Mm. is a little intimidating. It is. It is. And it's it's funny, other teachers that I know, I I just mentioned the word 
parent teacher conference and their toes shrivel up and, and they all just get this feeling yeah. that comes over them and um, we're very familiar with that aren't we yeah and I guess it does make sense we're used to having a bit of control and we can plan a lot of the things <laughs> that we do and here we are sitting at a table ready to receive whatever comes our way in terms of parents and students and their concerns and interests about the year yeah absolutely this one's a good one for us because it starts at the beginning of the year very much before the programs have settled in fully and it's more an opportunity for us to meet and communicate with the families and the students to set things up right for the year. I definitely agree that the transparency that we create by publishing all the students in our own work and by now hopefully providing the assessment scheme online too does make things like these parent meetings more easy to manage because the parents do come in if they want to be quite well informed. Absolutely. Before um, team up conferences this time around, I actually emailed my parents the link to our class blog sites and they were able to take a wee look around if they wanted to before they came in to see us. It always sort of surprises me because I'm so into it myself, the small number of parents who actually care to look. Yeah, I think it's a new concept for them, to be honest. They don't, they haven't had this anywhere else, really, this site that they can visit and, and see what's unfolding in their child's classroom. Yeah, I know I'd be all over it, though. I know, I know. That's your technological bent speaking as well. That would be it. <laughs> Now we're just going to listen to each of the observations Renee made about the credentialing system on her phone in and um, deal with each one one by one. So here's number one. Student achievement is at the heart of everything that we do and therefore I think it's really important that the first thing that we point out that we're hoping to have an impact on is the, the, the achievement of our students. The goal is always to raise their achievement and encourage their personal success. It's quite an interesting concept actually to think that an assessment scheme might have an impact on actual achievement because assessment's really about measuring achievement, not causing it. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think this thought comes from a place um, that... This this particular assessment scheme allows students to be assessed when they're ready and when they choose to be assessed. And so therefore, um, the hunch for me is that possibly that in itself will be enough to push their achievement up a little bit. Yep. And if you add to that the fact that they can try again, it's not so much about mm. asking them to achieve when we decide that they're ready, as you just said, but also about saying, should you not manage to achieve this standard right now, there are further opportunities in future. They yeah. can they can continue to develop and then achieve it. Yes, it's all about you're just not quite there yet. So I think the second thing that we should touch on here is um, agency. As we've mentioned earlier in this episode, and Chris has um, also said that you can read about um, our notes around agency on our project website. So um, go and check that out if it's something that interests you. I think it's worth coming back to as well, though, here, um, as it is something that we hope um, to have an impact on with the project and to get a measure of during this time. We're looking to answer a couple of key questions with this. Um, do the credentials develop agency in our students? And is this positively connected to student achievement? So I'd just say yep to that. <laughs> that I think uh, can sometimes be easily forgotten but is also really vital is the development of teacher agency and I think one aspect of this project um, that we will be having a wee look at is how this can this system can harness the professional capabilities of our teachers um, to enhance the learning programs that they're designing. 
This is actually quite a big one because I think that in a lot of ways in our current education system, there's so much external assessment, so much uh, um, evaluation of performance of students in the classroom that is provided by other agencies that teachers actually have lost touch sometimes with the process of formally assessing their students' work, not only with the practices, but also with the sense that they have the autonomy to determine what it is that matters in that piece of learning and how that might be measured. There are a lot of measures of assessment that are actually better done by a teacher in a classroom because if everything gets reduced simply to a test, then obviously everything gets reduced to something that can only be provided in writing or some kind of formal setting, whereas a lot of things that are valuable in learning are not able to be encapsulated that way. So this is about regaining some of the teacher's authority over assessment and allowing them to determine when they decide they want to, what it is that they are measuring and how they might measure it. clarity of assessment. Um, often our students don't truly understand what it is that they can do when we give them back an assessment grade. Um, they see a number, they know that it refers to an area of the curriculum, but they don't fully understand what that means. Um, I think by offering a program that clearly outlines what is required, how to get there, um, and, and you know, we can give them live feedback on that. The students and their families as well can better appreciate what it is they can and can't do, where to next, what it is they need to focus on um, developing. Another big one. I think it's quite often the case that the assessments that we do aren't really even understood by the people who are doing them, let alone those who might interpret them. So if we can simplify the process of assessment down into capsules of achievement that, that are meaningful things that are real in the lives of both the students and their families, then I think we're definitely doing ourselves a real favour. I want to jump on something you've just said there, Chris, real in the lives of the students and their families, I think is really important um, because often, you know, um, they they don't really have an, an understanding of why we're giving them this assessment that, that doesn't seem to have a real place in their, in their world or in their learning. Yeah, and I also sometimes think even the language we use to describe assessment is so arcane and difficult to access that it, it makes no sense to anybody. Mm, absolutely. I don't know how many times I go through what describe and explain and analyse and critique means with my students for NCA. Yeah, so that's what we'll do some work on, I think. that for me is a, is a bit of a passion point um, is a shift um, to thinking about learning as a journey um, with no fixed end point. So often we'll hand a piece of work back, it's got a grade and a comment and they kind of cast it aside never to look at it again and Chris I know that this is something that um, you've spent a lot of time talking with me about but something I think we hope to achieve with this project is a shift in that mindset um, from the learning being driven by assessments and, and making sure you get to the next point and the next point and the next point but um, to becoming a, an experience where naturally sort of the assessment falls from the learning and there is no end goal, there is only the next step or the next stage or the next development of a learning experience. This will definitely pave the way for the outcomes of learning to become things that are considered to be more real in the world or at least in the lives of the students and so I agree with that entirely. So this week we talked about the reasons that we might change our assessment systems. And last week we talked about the types of assessment that might come up in this system. So I'm thinking next time... We tackle what an assessment might look like. That's right. Let's actually <laughs> introduce to you guys a badge. Yay! So that's where we'll be next week. 
And to finish off this week's podcast, we have the long-awaited interview with Rosemary Hipkins. My name is Rosemary Hipkins. Um, I have had three careers, I guess. I was a teacher and a teacher educator. And for the last 20 years or so, I've been working as a researcher and particularly occupying the messy space between research and practice. Could you tell us um, a little bit about your interest in our project for micro-credentials? Well... I got interested in micro-credentials when I was doing a a commissioned piece of work for the Ministry of Education last year. They asked us to write a paper about trends in assessment and what's coming up and whether New Zealand's national assessment principles are still fit for purpose. And underneath that, they had some sub-questions and one of them was about micro-credentials, which I hadn't particularly thought about much before that time, um, but now know quite a lot about. Looking back at your career, which spans a few decades and as you said, has crossed a few domains in education, mm. is there anything that you would like to be able to look back on and say, that is an example of work I'm proud of? Oh gosh, that's a huge question and actually there's a, there's a lot of work um, over the years that I've been proud of. But if I, if I generalise, I suppose I would say that I'm proud of work that um, gets picked up and taken away and owned um, by the people that you've done it to support. Um, just over the, this last Christmas break, I was having a conversation um, with a retired school principal who was particularly influential on my own career and and she sent me a quote about leadership that was to the effect that um, you know that you've been a good leader when the people say they did it themselves. And, yeah, so work that fits into that category, that inspires people to do things, and then they forget where that inspiration came from. Nice. Yeah, that I'm happy with. Have you had the converse experience where you've done a piece of work or a project or been involved in something and it's been used in ways that were unintended? Well, I think that that's something that people always worry about, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Especially if you're doing a job that's regarded as being influential. Um, I I can think of a few things. In the early years of NCEA, um, I... when people were just working on trying to figure out what these criteria for achieved merit and excellence should look like, I floated the suggestion that the differences between them should be something qualitative that you could clearly describe and that what you could use to figure out what the difference was between a performance at the achieve level or the merit level and the excellence level um, was what difference the key competencies would make to the learning that you intended to happen. And I had a few examples, I can't remember now what they were, but I used a few examples to illustrate that. 
And in the wash and, you know, rough and tumble of things that happen when a policy has been built rapidly, it became Rose Hipkins says we should assess the key competencies, which is so not what I said at all. Um, so, yes, I regretted that I ever tried to push that one. Although I'm a Pollyanna, I think we're ready for that conversation again. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. and interestingly, that's something we're going to try and make some inroads on with this project, yeah. is yeah. to see if we can find ways to meaningfully measure yeah. the demonstration of those things in learning. Yeah, I get that. Mm. And um, with the DP of, a, of another school, I've just written a, a commentary paper to that effect for um, the journal Assessment Matters. It's out for review, but if it goes through, um, hopefully it'll hit the public domain later in the year. Yeah. Mm. For better or for worse, if you cast your mind back to your own secondary education, mm. can you see anything significant that has been a thread through your life that was created in your secondary school? Oh, gosh, secondary schools, in some ways they were the same as so many are now in terms of their timetabling structures and division into subject areas and things, but in other ways they were so very different um, because growing up in small-town New Zealand and the austerity of the post-war years uh, created a very different place than um, what there is now. And looking back, I can see that we occupied such a little world we weren't aware of the complexity of things, the outside influences. I don't think I ever gave a moment's thought to politics, for instance. Not politics with a capital P, but how the policies that are decided somewhere else impact and influence your life. We certainly never gave a moment's thought to environmental issues or anything like that. Those things were all sitting waiting in the future. I mean, it it would be an inconceivable world to today's children. My family didn't even have a television set. And uh, the few people in the town where I grew up who did had have very, very tall aerials to pick up any sort of a signal coming out of Auckland or Wellington. And we called them skite sticks. <laughs> of course. That um, because that's only, that's only the very few people in the town who were wealthy enough to, to have a television. And of course there was no such thing as the internet or mobile. We had party lines but for telephones. I mean, people now wouldn't even know what they were. Although so, I do love it when people answer mm-hmm. the phone with, are you there? Because mm-hmm. I know what that means. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right, working. working. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so school, school is different and yet the same. And one of the things that I'm immensely grateful for is the English teacher that I had in my last year of secondary school, who was young, just out of teacher's college, um, and gave me an absolutely abiding love of literature, um, which I carry with me to this day. My friends will tell you I'm a prolific reader, and uh, I gain a great deal of pleasure from reading good literature. And yet, conversely, we I'm just remembering I actually had two English teachers in the seventh form. The other one was very old school, and 
every Friday afternoon, I remember this as crashing boredom at the time, we went systematically page by page through Fowler's modern English usage, learning the rules of grammar. And while I thought that was boring at the time, in the extreme, um, I'm grateful that I actually can write grammatically and am generally pretty good yeah. at that stuff. Great. Yeah. And just to inverse that as well, um, what gives you optimism about the future in education? Kids give me optimism about the future. I, th- I think if you're a secondary school teacher, um, one of the particular joys and pleasures of that job is that kids are still so open to their possible futures and so idealistic. It's before the cynicism of how hard it is to get change has started to consolidate. And yeah, and yeah, it, it, I mean. If we want the future to be different, we've got to educate the kids to seize the opportunities and take it and they're up for it. It's us who've got to do the work. And uh, my last question for you is a question for everyone, and that's what are you reading at the moment? (laughs) What am I reading? I'm reading Kate Atkinson's latest novel, Transcription. I've um, been seized by her writing ever since her very first novel, Behind the Scenes at the Museum. And, and seen that similar trope, actually, of a hidden dilemma of childhood that doesn't become revealed to you until you're fully adult. I've seen that since then in several other novels that I've particularly enjoyed. Most recently, probably, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, which I nearly stopped reading after the first couple of chapters because I didn't like what seemed to be a bullying tone in it, but I was so glad I kept going. Complex, multi-layered novels, I enjoy those. Like life. Yeah, like life, (laughs) indeed. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was an episode of See Me After Class with Renee and Chris. My Twitter handle is at edutronic underscore net. And mine is at Renee Plunkett too. See you next week.